Welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is a woman who is loved and admired by many for her bold faith and steps of courage. At just 18 years old, Katie Davis Majors followed the Lord's plan and moved to Uganda to love and serve the people there. Now, over a decade later, Katie still calls Uganda home, along with her husband and their 15 children. Katie shares how her life in Uganda has not been a story of ease and happy endings on this side of heaven. Katie's message today is one of trusting in the Lord even when our prayers are not answered the way we wanted or the miracles don't come how we expect. Her story is about choosing to hope in the Lord no matter the circumstances and about encountering God's goodness and presence even in the dark seasons of our life. Thank you for joining me today. Um, it's yeah. it's uh, late night for you since you guys are like eight hours ahead and you have, is that right, 15 children? That doesn't even seem right. Yes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so um, so we'll just jump right in, Katie, because I know that um, just the trouble connecting, we had um, we're a little shorter for time, and you have a okay. lot, lots of stories about yourself and others and your ministry to tell. Um, so today, I just I want to talk about. Um, we know so many people know your big story um, that you shared in your book, Kisses from Katie, but then I want to talk even yeah. more about. Um, the daring to hope because just recently rereading both of them, I think that the daring to hope is so much just more raw and real and what people can relate to that no matter where you're at um, in your your faith walk. So um, we'll dive into that one a little bit more, but to start off, can you just tell us kind of just an overview um, of yourself, of your story and how you got to Uganda and you've lived there for what, going on 11 years. Is that right? Actually, I think, um, what year is it? It'll be 12 12, years in August. Yeah. Crazy. And Um, you moved there when you were 18. So kind of just take us back to that. And just let's, um, for those that don't know, which I feel like everybody should know your story, but for those (laughs) of those that don't know, tell us how you got there. For sure. So my mom and I had actually come here here to Uganda on a short-term trip during my senior year of high school. And we were here for three weeks working at a local orphanage. And I just, I mean, I loved it. And I saw such an immense need all around me and really wanted to be a part of meeting that need and wanted to be a part of what God was doing here. And I met a pastor who had a much bigger orphanage outside of the town that we we were working in that was more rural and just a lot more in need of help. And he asked me on that trip if I would be willing to commit to come back and work with him for a year. He was starting up a kindergarten and nursery school program on the orphanage compound, which he and his wife lived on and then housed about 120 children. And so I told him that I would think about it and I would pray about it. And we stayed in touch via email once I got back to the States and decided that I was going to commit a year after high school to come here and work with him and his wife. And so I moved back here um, the summer after my senior year of high school and was helping him out with his little preschool and kindergarten program and uh, just different odd jobs at the orphanage, even just um, running to market to buy groceries and, and different things that they needed help with. And, um, and at that point, had you, had you had like felt called to the mission field? 
I, I have a 16 year old who does feel called to yeah. the mission field. And when I first read your story years ago, that was scary for me. And now, I mean, God works, for you know, sure. parents' hearts to let our children go. So had you been a feeling a call to the mission field or were you just taking a gap year and thought you'd get some things figured out? No, I, I feel like when I was probably, um, probably in high school, maybe 14, 15, I just started to feel a draw to, um, international missions. And I didn't, honestly, I really thought, um, maybe India, uh, but you know, I didn't really have East Africa on my radar for sure, yeah. but this was, um, the place that it worked out for my mom and I to travel and I feel like once once I got here and I saw the need and was asked to step in, it was just, yeah, just it seemed like this was the next thing that God was doing and I wanted to follow and I wanted to obey. And even when I came for the year, I really did think um, that I would probably end up leaving after a year. I don't think I thought, oh, this is my whole life's work. Although my parents now like pretty jokingly say like, yeah, we kind of thought you might stay. Kind um, of got that think, feeling. I do think they saw that in me, you know, even, even from a young age, I just, I loved helping people and I loved serving people. And I was intrigued by, uh, different people groups and different cultures and think that, um, uh, people's differences are really beautiful, you know? So I think they weren't shocked when the year was coming to a close. And during that year, um, I had actually started my own little nonprofit as well. Uh, I was still doing my work at the orphanage, but on the side, I had started um, sponsoring some children to go to school because I realized that a lot of the kids living in the orphanage had family members um, right. who loved them and would come and visit them, or they would go to visit them on the weekends. And, you know, unlike some places where children are abandoned and put into orphanage because orphanages because no one wants them. Um, in East Africa, the majority of children that are in institutions are there because of poverty. Parents just feel like they can't, um, you know, they can't make the money to provide their children with what they need. And so they send them to orphanages essentially because they believe they'll have a better life. They'll be able to receive an education and, um, so you started when you with you talking about that you started kind of your nonprofit at that young age realizing they needed sponsorship but, but you came from a pretty affluent American family so at that young age of 18 how did you make sense of God in that like seeing I mean I've I've been to Africa as well Uganda um, mm -hmm. how did you make sense of seeing like oh my gosh how does my faith play into this because I you finally have a really wide open view of suffering and poverty and all of that so as an 18 year old how did you make sense of that yeah I mean I, I think it stretched my faith quite a bit and I I do think my parents were really um always very good at, at teaching us and very consistently reminding us that the way we lived was not the way most of the world lived. And we did a lot of service projects, even through our church and, um, in the inner city downtown. And my mom and I were involved in some ministry downtown with women and homeless people. And so I think, um, I had seen some suffering, but I had never seen anything quite like what I encountered here. But honestly, rather than cause me to question God, which would probably be a normal reaction to wonder like, okay, God, how do you allow so much suffering? I mean, I, I really feel like I learned so much about God 
because I saw people who were suffering immensely and were so much more impoverished than anything I had ever seen or experienced. And yet they still had such a genuine worship for Jesus and they still cried out to him and they, um, they prayed to him for provision in a way that I hadn't ever had to. And they trusted in him in a way that I hadn't ever really needed to rely on him because I could kind of rely on him and my stuff, or I could kind of rely on him and my money. And so I think in a big way, I was just in awe of their faith that seemed so genuine and so true and so real because it couldn't be tainted by money and it couldn't be distracted by stuff. Yeah, you're exactly. I mean, that was a takeaway that I had too, when I left, just like, wow, they, um, they need God and they need Jesus so much. And they just have this joy, um, that's hard. Mm -hmm. I think hard to get in America land of plenty when we just, um, can rely on ourselves so much more. Absolutely. Um, So going forward, obviously you stayed there. Um, and then how long after did you create a Mazama? That was kind of the start to it. Your small nonprofit that you started, right? Yeah, that was, it was kind of slowly being born. I didn't, um, I didn't really mean to turn it into a thing, but honestly, just as I, these children that I worked with in the orphanage, as I found out that they had family members, I was kind of started asking questions. Okay. Why do you live here? And why do you have to stay in this place if you have family? And, um, so in working with the pastor that I was living with him and his wife, I just asked him like, Hey, would it be okay if I offered to pay for some of these kids school fees so that they could live at home with their families? And, you know, I had saved up some small money to come here just so that I could live for the year and school fees. While they're such an enormous cost for parents here, they're really pretty small. And I think I figured out that for something like $300, I could send a child to school and pay for all their supplies and some food for their family, you know, and and that seemed so small to me. So I started paying for a couple little girls uh, from the community to go to school so that they could continue to live with their grandmother instead of living in the orphanage that was so overcrowded and so understaffed. And honestly, just as I started, you know, I would call home and talk to my parents about that and they would tell their friends and I would tell my friends and people, People just started to say like, oh, well, sure, I could give you some money to do that. And so slowly but surely, I I was sending two kids to school, and then I was sending 10 kids to school, and then 20 kids to school. Um, And so Amazima, which is the name of our organization now, was kind of just slowly and organically born by seeing those needs and meeting them, and grew and grew and grew. And today we have... Oh man, I guess we have like 650 children that are sponsored and we've opened um, a secondary school and we're about to open a primary school Um, and we just do a lot of different discipleship initiatives and um, community Bible studies and vocational trainings and all sorts of things. Which is just incredible. And folks can go on to, um, I watched a couple of the videos this week of just because it was last oh, year. I think cool. you celebrated your 10th year, 10 year anniversary. And yeah. I mean, the school, the secondary school, it's incredible. Like it, oh, wow. And I, when I see all that, when I think of your story, um, I actually have on my desk a little card with this uh, quote from you that says, courage is not about knowing the path. It's about taking the first step. And mm-hmm. I think that is, is your story. I mean, like you said, you just started with one yeah. or two sponsorships and 
then trusted God and he grew it to this amazing ministry that you never had planned. People ask me all the time, like, oh, could you have ever like envisioned yourself here or seen all this coming or imagined that a Mazima would be this? I'm like, no, never in my wildest dreams did I set out to do anything remotely like this, you know, but, um, I saw a need and I wanted to be obedient to help in the way that I could. And I, I believe God just blessed that and grew it. And, um, absolutely. And, and you easy oh, to give him all the credit because I look at how big it all is and think like, yeah, I didn't do that. Yeah. I mean, and you're a young girl too, in a country that doesn't necessarily always value it. I mean, so it's like, God uses those that don't seem like the most likely, and that's so your story. And so at the same time, you also were adopting several children. That's how you you now have 15, two biological, and 13 adopted kids, right? That That's right. We have... Um... So I started, after I'd been in Uganda about a year, I started fostering my first three girls. They were sibling set, and um, through some different tragic events, they didn't have any family members to care for them. And so originally, I started just fostering them short-term, thinking that we would keep looking for other options. But after a few months, just really felt God speaking to me that we were to be a family. Um, And so... That was my first three. And then over the next few years, God brought me five more sibling sets, which adds up very quickly. So uh, (laughs) we have 13 girls and now we have uh, two little boys that we've just added in the last uh, three years. I guess Noah's about to be three. Yeah. And I'm sure they're not spoiled at all from all the big sisters. Oh my goodness. (laughs) They're so loved and so doted on all the time. I am sure. So when we're talking and sharing this part of your story, it sounds, I mean, that's why when I get into your second book, because this part of your story sounds like, wow, very glamorous. God bless your organization, bless the people. But the real story, the hard story, I feel like is in your second book where you're very raw Mm -hmm. of like, okay, the story didn't go exactly how I'd hoped. Maybe the big picture, but these little stories where I felt like God didn't answer my prayers. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what so many of us can relate to when we've prayed for somebody to get healed or prayed for somebody, you know, not to die. They, God doesn't answer them. So that's what I want to talk about for our next half hour is just some of those real stories and you're wrestling with your faith and your hope. So if you want to talk about that, like, I know you share several stories in that book, but maybe just talking about, you know, praying for someone to live that didn't and how that brought you closer to God and kind of the real raw stuff that you're living. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think um, in my first probably three, maybe even four years here, I feel like God just did all these unbelievable big things. You know, he, he grew a big ministry pretty quickly and he grew my big family pretty quickly. And it just, um, yeah, it's easy for that to be a story that is told and just appears to be so glamorous. Oh, she's over there living this radical life devoted to Christ. And in some ways it was that, you know, but, um, when the dust settled at the end of the day, I was a single mom with a bunch of children who were dealing with all their own trauma and we didn't always have all the resources we needed. And, you know, my day to day looked the same as any other moms would, you know, the 
breakfast and teaching a child to read and going over spelling words and folding the laundry and chopping up vegetables for dinner. And I, I feel like it was in those quiet, unseen moments that God started to meet me and reveal to me more and more of himself and more of who he was. And um, we went through a pretty hard season just in our family life and in our um kind of in our season of ministry, I had a foster daughter who I did intend to adopt, who went back to live with her birth mother. And, you know, everything we do at Amazima is really geared toward family preservation and keeping children with their birth parents and keeping them out of institutions. Um, but Jane's birth mother had been gone for many, many years, and we had already gotten so far in the process to adopt her without finding any willing family members. And so um, it was heartbreaking to have her go back to be with her mother, as much as I now believe, of course, that that is you know, what God intended and that was right. It was still heartbreaking. And then um, pretty soon after that happened, we had a couple different people come into our lives that were very, very sick. And two of them that lived with us for a time and ended up passing away, um, in our home. We, we've moved since then, but we lived almost right next to the local hospital. And we have, um, I guess houses here are often built with like what maybe used to be a servant's quarters, I guess. But Mm -hmm. we, at both of our houses that we've lived in have had like a little guest house in the back. And we've always used that, um, for just, you know, homeless people or sick people or, um, people just in need of a place to go. And so, um, and you share about those, the the women that you brought into your home that were on deathbed. And, you know, the first example of was Catherine, like you were, you prayed Mm -hmm. just vehemently to God, like, please heal her. And you believe that he could, but he didn't. Um, and you really wrestled with God through that. And I think, so many of us as believers can relate, like, wh- where is God and not answering our prayers? But you feel like it brought you closer to the Lord. Share a little bit just about that in particular. Yeah. So Catherine um, was the mother to five children in the Amazima sponsorship program. And so that's how we were in relationship with her family. And um, because of her sickness, she was too weak to take care of the kids. So she and all of her kids moved in to our little guest house and then eventually actually into our house house as she got sicker and weaker. And I mean, I was looking at her five beautiful young children and just thought like, well, of course God will heal her. And look at, look at these kids. He, he has to heal her. Um, you know, and I, I think I had been taught like, well, maybe even subconsciously I thought like, well, if you believe with enough faith or if you pray it with enough faith, or if, if you believe enough, right. Then, um, then certainly he would hear and he would answer. And, um, and, and like you said, yeah, he didn't, he did not heal her. She died. We, we took her to the hospital. Uh, when, I mean, we would take her regularly to the hospital for checkups, but one time we took her and she never got well enough to come back home. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I remember driving home in the middle of the night thinking, um, you know, all her kids were asleep on mattresses in the floor of my living room because so we didn't even have enough extra bedrooms for everybody. Uh, and I remember driving home late that night after she passed away and knowing like five little kids are going to wake up and I'm going to have to tell them that 
they don't have a mom anymore. I mean, right. And I was and you mad. Were angry. That's what I was going to say. I you was angry mad at God. Yeah. I was, and I had spent hours and days and weeks and months, you know, just begging him to heal this woman. And I had watched her get stronger sometimes and really thought that she was going to overcome her illness and, and she didn't, but, um, you know, in the days and weeks and even months that followed, uh, there was such a quiet space. I'd spent so much of my free time caring for her. And mm-hmm. I think anybody who has cared for uh, a loved one who is dying or who is very sick knows that feeling of well, suddenly when they're gone, they're, you feel like you have nothing to do. And I had plenty to do. I, you know, I had my 13 kids and still her five kids and, um, ministry things happening, but so much of my space had been taken up with caring for her. And now it was just empty. Um, and you know, in God's grace, I was, I was able to take that emptiness to him and I was able to sit before him and tell him, uh, that I was angry. You know, and I was even just reading, I was reading with my kids today, just, um, in preparation for Easter, we read the story of, Mary and Martha, when Lazarus has died, you know, and Jesus comes to town four days later, you know, and they must just be thinking, God, you're late. You didn't come, you know, you didn't show up. And I just, I think that story resonated so much with me during that time because Mary and Martha aren't afraid to say that to him. They just say to him like, Hey, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like he s- said to me in that time, it's okay. It's okay to yeah. be angry. Like, I'm not mad back at you because you yeah. feel this way. Um, and, and I can, you know, I can take your anger and your sadness and I can meet you here. Um, and, and Jesus died for this, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, I think you're... Like- no matter how much I wanted to run from him in that time and no matter how much I wanted to accuse him of not healing her, I could not, um, he was there, you know, his presence, it was heavy in our home and his peace, it was there and it was undeniable. And whether, whether I wanted to see it or know it or not, it was, it was there. And I feel like he pursued me in that time. And, um, as I continued to take all my sadness and all my anger and even all my uncertainty about what her children would do in the future and how he would meet them, you know, he just continued to reassure me of his presence and reassure me of his goodness and allow me to see his goodness in really, really small things and simple things that, um, ultimately allowed me to believe that his plan was right and good, even when I couldn't see that. And it's such, um, I mean, I love how you shared the story with Lazarus, but, and then also brought up, you know, Jesus's death on the cross in this time of Easter. I mean, that is what your stories throughout this Mm -hmm. book remind me of this hope that we have in Christ. I mean, and even that story for Jesus at that time did not look like that's how it should have ended, you know, to his followers. And that's what we see here too. We think this is not how the story should have ended, but through your example and so many others, we can see we can get closer to Jesus through those harder, really deep valleys. But then we also can see the life on the other side. Um, and then you share about the other story of 
Betty was that that Betty was her name, correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah and right. just and walking through that again. And, you know, you were very honest about your doubt. Like, oh, is he even going to answer my prayer this time? I don't know. But you just had kind of a new, a fresh look on that, like knowing God was faithful um, through that. So just talk, I mean, just talk about how your relationship, I guess, with the Lord and others, like this hope that you have through these, yeah. through these really hard times. Yeah, like you said, Betty came kind of right on the heels of of Catherine and intermixed with another friend, Simon, who actually we still see every Sunday. He's alive and well. Um, but same. I mean, I prayed for Betty's healing. And, and I think this time, though, it was more with open hands, you know. I think with Catherine, I kind of demanded that God would heal her. Um, with Betty, I, I hoped and prayed wholeheartedly that God would heal her, but I knew that, um, he could not, and he could still be a good and loving God if he didn't, because, um, you know, it's what the Easter season is all about. I love this season because Mm -hmm. I, I feel like so much of, of my life has been just the experience of a God who really does, you make a river in the wasteland and really does, um, bring beauty out of ashes and, and really does, you know, bring life out of a dark tomb. You know, that's, that's what the resurrection is that Jesus was dead. And then he wasn't, he wasn't dead. And I think God, you know, he, he still does that for us. And he, he does it obviously in eternity. I mean, we're saved when we die, we don't have to die. We can be with him alive forever, but also in our lives, we can experience that. I believe that God can take the darkest and most terrible places of suffering in our lives, and He can make them places where we know Him. He can make them places where we grow more fully into His image and who He wants us to be. I mean, He makes them places of new life for us. And um, not only have I you know, not only do I believe that, but I have lived that. I have lived yeah. that in my own story. I have lived that as I have watched him work out so much redemption in the stories of my own children and the children at Amazima and just the different people that he has brought into our lives and all around us. You know, I have seen him transform so many stories and take so many dark and hard things and make them beautiful. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I don't think we get to see them made all the way beautiful on this side. You know, um, Catherine's children, they, I write about this too. We found them a foster family and their foster family is darling and wonderful. And their foster mom just, you know, adores them. And that's great. And it is beautiful and it is God doing good, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, if you would really ask me, I wish, I wish Catherine could see them grow up. I do. I wish, I wish they could grow up with their mother. I believe, you know, I believe that that's how God would have intended it to be in a perfect world. Um, and so he brings good and, and also some of it remains hard. You know, I don't think, I don't think Jesus intended to be, um, a quick fix of, Oh, it's all happy all the time. Isn't, you know, the promise isn't that it's always going to be happy. The promise is that one day he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And one day he will restore all 
things. And so um, even in the midst of the hard, and even when the story doesn't have a happy ending, and even when I don't understand the good, I can look forward to the fact that one day it will all be made right. You're right. And that's what you share. I mean, I just love the visual that you give when you knew that your friend Betty was like taking her last breaths and just knowing like what she was seeing on the other side and being close to somebody that close to seeing Jesus. Um, and, and knowing that hope is just right there on this earth. It's really hard. We're not making sense of it, but knowing right on the other side that that's what she was seeing. Absolutely. Another thing you talk about in your book that I think is so, um, relatable for so many of us is just the loneliness that you felt, which seems crazy because you're surrounded by right. lo- lots of children and lots of people needing you, but you still, um, I don't know if you still do, but you still, you talk about the loneliness that you felt. Um, and, but God used that to bring you closer to him. So maybe share a little bit about that if you can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God has been, um, so unbelievably gracious in blessing me with such an amazing husband. Um, and so I don't feel that quite as much anymore, but, um, I think, right. That's what I was saying. I think you wrote that right before you got, you got married. So God is is so, is so intentional. And I am so thankful that he allowed me to walk a lonely season because it drew me straight to him. You know, there were so many days where I was doing all the hard things of mothering And all the mundane, boring things of mothering, right? Wiping spit up off another baby or doing the spelling words for the 10th time or, or, you know, whatever it is, listening to a child tell you the same story and, you know, all the little things that are motherhood. And then on top of it, um, taking care of some, some pretty sick or pretty sad people, you know, um, and trying to love them well and, you can't explain that to somebody, you know, even your, even your closest friend and God has given me good, good friends to walk this journey with me. But at the end of the day, I would tuck all those kids into bed and it was me, you know, and I felt, um, pretty unseen by the outside world. Which um, is crazy and, to us when we, you know, know of your name and what you do. Sure, we think, right. oh my gosh, she's like a glamorous, famous person. But you, you were real that like, no, I felt very alone. I spent a lot of hours on my bathroom floor with just Jesus, <laughs> yeah. with just Jesus. So you sharing that, I think is very impactful. And I think, um, you know, I, I love that too. Just that, that place of, Clearly, I, I love Mary of Bethany. She might be like one of my favorite biblical characters. I, I love the realness of what I see in her relationship with Jesus. And, um, you know, I think so many times it felt like I was just kind of sitting at his feet, you know, crying and um, even wetting his feet with my tears and going, okay, Lord, you know, I want, I want to follow you. I want to obey you, but I feel so alone and and so unseen and so hidden away. Um, but that was such a beautiful season that so deeply grew my relationship with him. And I believe he was intentional to allow that for me before he would bring um, my husband into my life to um, also fill that loneliness. I think he wanted me to first turn to him with it. And ultimately, I'm thankful for what it developed in my relationship with Jesus. 
Yeah, because that's such a cool story. And we won't, we don't have time to get into it, but just how you, you met your husband and ended up with him. So I encourage people to read your book if they don't know that story. Um, cause that's just very cool how Jesus brought you two together and prepared you for him. The other thing that you mentioned that I think so many moms and I know I can relate to, and your words just jumped off the page with me when you were talking about, um, just finding Jesus in the mundane. Um, I think when we find this in your book, you say, um, I was beginning, beginning to understand that it wasn't my productivity that God desired. It was my heart. It wasn't my ministry that God loved. It was me. He was glorified when you did the things right in front of you, no, trivi- no matter how trivial. And I think as moms, like we need to hear that. And um, it's crazy that you, you have experienced that in your life. But I think, um, talk a little bit more into that for us. Yeah, and I, th- I feel like that was definitely what he was teaching me in that kind of hidden season was that like, yeah, there can be big ministry and, and big family and you can write blogs and, and many people can sing your praises and tell you how amazing you are. But at the end of the day, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. I mean, what matters is what you do when nobody's looking and nobody's applauding, you know, when you are patient with your child for the hundredth time that day, when you are faithful, um, to point your child or your friend to Jesus, when you know, they aren't listening or don't care or don't Uh want to listen, you know, those are the moments I think when he is so truly glorified. Um, and I believe, you know, that he, he will give each one of us our place and our people and to do the little things that he gives us to do in our place and with our people and to do them well, that is glorifying to him. And, um, man, yeah, it's, it's the best work. It's the best work. It's so much better than, uh, being an author or a speaker and having all the people tell you how amazing and inspiring your life is, you know, those, those things have their place, but I really believe that our very best work for God is going to take place in our own homes in secret, you know, when it's just for him and he sees our heart and he knows that we're trying, um, and the reward there of relationship with him, um, and of his love, you know, that he gives so lavishly is is so much better than the praise of anybody else. That's right. And we don't all have to, I mean, if God calls you to Uganda, absolutely. But we don't all, that's not God's path for each of us. And you share a lot about loving the people that are around you and that it's hard, but loving those people that are around you. And so let's just talk a little bit. Like I mentioned, there's so many I've really encouraged people if you have not read either of your books, but especially Daring to Hope in this Easter season. I mean, going rereading it the last couple of weeks, I felt like, I don't know, it's almost a devotional of like, really, what what is hope? Why did Jesus die? I mean, why do we have this hope? So I encourage people to read that. And we will put links on your episode about where we can find you, where people can order the book, where they can find you, um, all of that. So going back to your the ministry, Amazima, so you are no longer like, that's not, you're not in charge of that anymore, right? Is that you've kind of stepped down to focus on not, family? Not really. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, we have a country director and we have an amazing, amazing Ugandan staff. And still, so I still, um, I still participate. I have, right. You're you still know, involved. You're just, that's... And I, I'm still involved, but I am not the boss and I'm okay. very happy 
not be the boss. Because you've got a big family to <laughs> big family to focus on. And yes. I will share links because I was just even watching today. Um, I think because I'm on the email list, is that somebody that supports your ministry and just um the some of the house parents talking about the Easter tradition there of washing the yes. kids' feet. And I'm like, oh, that's it's incredible, but that is just um an example of what you do in your ministry, what a Mazama does is just servant, having that servant um attitude like Jesus did. No, oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, our, our biggest goal, we do all kinds of things, you know, medical relief and schooling and, um, all community outreaches. But at the end of the day, our, our biggest goal and our greatest aim is obviously that these kids would, would know Christ and would give their lives to him. And yeah, if people are interested in helping and supporting, is it best to go on the website? You do child sponsorships, but not for individual children. Is that right? I'm trying to remember. That's right. Yeah, we have it kind of as a pooled program right now so that individual children aren't matched with um individual monthly sponsors. But uh, yeah, the best way to connect is to go on the website. It's amazima.org, A-M-A-Z-I-M-A.org. Um, Amazima is the Lugandan word for truth. Great. And when you were sharing, like I mentioned that video to see your school and we'll share that, um, or just sh- showing Amazima school, you talk about that was your huge God-sized dream. So now that that's been accomplished, do you have another huge God-sized dream or do you feel like yeah. it, it, you feel like you're done like with those God-sized dreams? <laughs> well, no, I think God will probably keep doing the things we are. Um, we, so we started with a secondary school because we felt like we, um, we're losing a lot of influence with our secondary students because they were having to go off to boarding schools in order to get a good secondary education. So we started with a secondary school, but we're hopeful that in the next year or two, we'll have a fully operating primary school as well. Um, and that way, you know, we've been using local schools and we've had uh, pretty great relationships with a lot of the schools that we're using, but we really want discipleship to be the focus of our ministry. And so we're building these schools ultimately so that we can handpick the staff. And our goal is just that every single person that a student interacts with on the school campus, whether they're a groundskeeper or the principal or the school nurse or the cook in the kitchen, um, that everybody's goal at the school is to pour Christ into these students and make disciples. And I really believe that these young disciples are going to be the people that go out and change this country for Jesus. That's right. And well, Katie, I just appreciate so much you sharing um, your story. You are just such a light of hope, I think, for so many, um, not only in Uganda, but here in the States when we read your story and hear your story. Um, So thank you very much for joining us today and sharing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I hope my conversation with Katie has left you encouraged to hope even when the chapters of your story feel dark and painful. You can know that the Lord doesn't leave us during those times, but He often draws us closer. As Katie says in her book, Daring to Hope, He taught me that death was not the end. The end was when He rose from the tomb. This world is not all there is, and death is not the end. Our fight is not for this life, our fight is for eternity, and a hope for eternity truly cannot disappoint. More of Katie's story and her faith journey can be found in her best-selling books, Kisses from Katie and Daring to Hope. You can also connect with Katie on Instagram or Facebook. As always, the links are on the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. 
Also, if you're liking the show, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. This helps spread the message that there's always hope in our stories with Jesus Christ in our life.